Well, please turn with me in your Bible once again to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Luke, chapter 4. We return once again to the study of Jesus' temptation by the devil. The last section in Luke before Jesus uh, becomes evident to the public in his public ministry. Luke chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 14, excuse me, verse 13. And then we will focus on the second temptation of Jesus this morning in verses 5 through 8. Luke writes this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I'll give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands They will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. How much, I wonder, would someone have to pay you to burn down your neighbor's house? How much would someone have to pay you to throw out spikes on the road in front of a random passing car? How much would someone have to pay you to get on the phone and call your best friend and berate them for five minutes with all kinds of profanity? You say, what do you mean? How much would they have to pay me? I would never do those things for any amount of money. Now, these are things that are not tempting to us in and of themselves. And so, of course, it's easy to say that. What about if there were things that were more appealing to you? What would it take for you to do? What kind of evil thing would it require you to do in order to receive a $1 billion fortune? Or to know that you would never be required to work another day in your life? Or to know that no one would ever be mean to you again in any way? These things might tempt you a little bit more. And yet, what if you were tempted with literally control of all of the entire world? All of its kingdoms, all of its glory, everything that is in it for all time and forever. And all you had to do was one act. One that wouldn't take a lot of physical exertion. One that no one else would see except for the devil himself and, of course, God. What if this is what you had to do? Well, this is the exact situation that Jesus is faced with. Jesus is led out into the desert to be tempted. He's already been tempted to turn bread or stone into bread. And now the devil, having uh, been thwarted on that first temptation, now turns and says, I'll offer you everything. And all you have to do is bow down and worship me. Just one time, just a little bowing, just a little bit of praise that happens this one time. And you'll never have to worry about anything else again. 
So what is Jesus going to do? Well, I think we know the answer to that question. Uh, we know that he's not going to do it. We've read the end of the story. We know Jesus' character. We know the end of his earthly life and then his resurrection. And we know where he is now. We know what happened. But it's still instructive to look and to see how did Jesus navigate this. And to be impressed by what he did, to learn from his example, and then to understand why it is that this makes him such a worthy Savior and worthy of our trust and of our obedience. So here, we're going to pick up on the same idea as last week, but with a new temptation, which is this. Jesus, in this text, perfectly responds to the devil's temptations and shows himself to be God's faithful son who is ready to minister to the people Jesus perfectly responds to the devil's temptations and shows himself to be God's faithful son who's ready to minister to the people. Now briefly to catch you up if you weren't here last week or if you've slept a few times since then. We saw in verse 1 that Jesus was led out to the desert full of the Holy Spirit returning from the Jordan after his baptism. And the spirit of God drove him out into the desert. This was his act of following what God by his spirit was telling Jesus to do. And he goes out into the desert. No one else is around. Nothing really else is around. Nothing much anyway, except for some wild beasts and a whole lot of sand and maybe a few desert shrubs. But, uh, and of course the stones that were there as well. But Jesus is taken out there and it's for a specific purpose, to be tempted by the devil. These three temptations are not only the devil's idea, but they are God's idea. Not because God delights in what the devil is doing, not because God wants Jesus to fail, but rather because he is confident, he knows that he will succeed, and he wants Jesus to go through this experience so that he's tested like we are, and he succeeds, so that he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses, and so that he can show himself to be who he really is. So God, in his sovereignty and in his wisdom, sends Jesus out into the desert, into this hostile territory, both literally and then figuratively, because the devil is there tempting him to do all of these things that we read about here. He's tempted by the devil. He eats nothing. And so the first temptation is that when he becomes hungry, when those 40 days were ended, the devil tempts him to turn the stone into bread and to choose food over trusting God. Jesus is ready for the temptation, and he answers him according to Scripture in verse 4. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And Jesus shows us what the other half of that verse says in Deuteronomy 8.3, which is that there are more important things in life than even the most necessary food, and that is obedience to the Word of God. So that's the first temptation, and Jesus successfully passes that test or that question. This morning, we're going to look at the second one, which is namely the wrong path to glory, if you'd like to put it that way. The wrong path to glory. And we'll begin by looking at the devil's side of things, the devil's temptation. And the devil tempts Jesus essentially to receive glory and the possession of all the nations of the earth without suffering. He wants to offer Jesus what Jesus is owed and what he rightly should have and what anyone would want to have. But he wants to do so without having to go through God's way of doing this. So first of all, in verse 5, we find the devil's display. The devil's display. That is, all the kingdoms of the world. It says, he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, Matthew, if you read his account, notes that he was led up to a high mountain to make this happen. Uh, from this mountain, he would have no doubt been able to see much of 
the world, at least the world around him. Uh, even with that said, there's reason to believe that what the devil is doing is showing him here not only what would be visible literally from that mountain, but to give him a, a kind of vision of all the kingdoms across the entire globe, possibly, and I would even say probably, not even the kingdoms that were exi in existence at that time, but all the kingdoms that would ever exist. This is the inheritance that Jesus would have. And uh, the reason why it says that is because he showed them all to him in a moment of time. But the point is not so much the mechanics of how Jesus saw them as the comprehensive nature of it and that he saw them. The devil is pointing out, he says, look, everything that's out there, all the kingdoms of the earth, they will be yours. And you can see the splendor. Just picture the kinds of things that he would have seen, not just like ants in the distance, but you can envision what he could have envisioned, the military might, the wealth, the, the precious jewels that would belong to these kingdoms, the, the engineering projects, the amazing construction that all of these kingdoms have had, the vegetation, the animals, and of course, all of the citizens and all that they contribute to that picture. Uh, a few years ago, uh, some of us had the privilege of visiting the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. Some of you have perhaps been there while we were attending a conference. Um, and the museum evidently has some incredible artwork. I don't really know enough about art to say whether it was great or not. I just know it was inside the buildings and I saw some of it. I'll have to take their word for it of people who know more than me. But one thing about the museum, besides the grounds and how amazing they were, that kept my attention for far longer than I thought possible was the view from the south side from the overlook where you would go outside, look behind the buildings, and directly as you look in front of you, you have West Los Angeles. You can see the planes coming in and taking off. You can see Marina del Rey. You can see the Pacific Ocean and Malibu over off to this direction. And you can see uh, so much of the LA Basin over here and downtown LA and West LA. There's so much to be seen just from this one spot. And you think this is just a large part, a large portion of one major city in one country at one time and place in history. And then you take that and say, Jesus is offered not just that little subset of a current time and place in one kingdom, but all the kingdoms of the world, all of it. The splendor is impossible to describe. And yet this is what he has offered. Put yourself in a position to see all of that, and then someone tells you, you can have all of that right now. All you have to do is this one thing. That's all you got to do. And so the devil does just that. He says, I will give you all this domain and its glory. To you, he says, I will give it. This is the devil's offer. The devil's offer. All this can be yours. Now, you might be asking the question, how can he do that? I thought this belonged to God. Who does the devil think that he is? You know, have you ever tried to buy something from someone that stole it from someone else? Or maybe they, uh, they come and they don't actually have it to sell. It's not theirs. And then maybe you've been the unfortunate buyer of something like that. And only to have the police come and say, well, I'm sorry, you spent your money. But this actually is a stolen item. And the original owner is getting it back. And now you are out your money. Maybe you can sympathize with that. And you might say, well, what's going on with the devil? How can he do this? Well, this would be a claim that would be really difficult to believe if you didn't know the other parts of the Bible. He says, this has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Again, an amazing, amazing statement. But it is, in one very real sense, a true statement. Now, of course, it's not the entire picture, is it? Because who is the ruler of all the nations? It's God. 
God is the one who rules over everything. We learned about this in the book of Daniel, for example, where Nebuchadnezzar says that God is the ruler, the Lord is the ruler, and he bestows the kingdom on whomever he wishes. But it is true that the Bible refers to Satan as the, quote, ruler of this world. John 12, 31, Jesus says judgment upon, is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, even the God of this world. The God of this world. And 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It is he who even gives authority to the various kings and kingdoms of the earth as an instrument that God allows to distribute this power and this authority under God's ultimate sovereignty. And this culminates in the reign of none other than Antichrist, which Revelation 13.2 describes this way. It says the dragon, referring to Satan according to the previous chapter, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And it describes this Antichrist as one who rules over a territory greater than anyone ever had before. So Satan does have the ability to make this offer. All of this can be yours. Now, of course, there are many caveats to this in terms of what the offer would actually consist of. Would he follow through on this promise? We know that Satan is a deceiver. What would happen to Jesus if he actually did this hypothetically? Well, he wouldn't be worthy of it anymore, and then uh, he wouldn't be ruling in this way, and then the nations themselves would not be the kind of people that Jesus came to die for and to inherit. So there's all kinds of problems with that, but if you take this little narrow window, the devil is not speaking entire untruth. There is something to what he's saying, even if it's deceptive and incomplete. And so it would have been appealing on some level. I will give this to you. I've showed you all this. I'm willing to give it to you. But there's a condition. You say, what's the catch? Not much of one, the devil says. All you have to do is worship me. All you have to do is worship me. This is the devil's condition, verse 7. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Now, at this point, the temptation might have come to Jesus in this way. Jesus would not be wrong to want all the kingdoms of the earth as his own. In fact, this is exactly what God has promised to his anointed one. You understand that this is not a wrong thing for Jesus to want. Sometimes we might miss this point because we look around and we say, well, you know, things are, God promises us spiritual promises and we shouldn't want anything to do with this earth or this world or anything like that. Well, Jesus has been promised that at some time in the future, not during his first coming, but at some time when God sends him, that he will actually be the recipient of all the nations of the earth. And this is his inheritance. Psalm 2.8 says, Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. The problem is, which way should he go to get there? Option one, ask God. Psalm 2.8 says, ask of me. Um, option two is to do it Satan's suggested way. Just worship me and you can have it right now. You don't have to ask God. You can just do it. Now let's think about these two different options. For the first way, for Jesus to do things God's way, he would have to wait and defer to God's way of giving it to him. And he knows what that means. He's at the disposal of the Father. Now, often in life, especially when we are children, we hesitate 
to ask for things. Do you understand what, I'm, what I mean by this? We, we don't want to ask someone, so we kind of suggest things. Or we try to say certain phrases that manipulate people into giving us what we want, but we're afraid to ask. Because when we ask, we can be told no. And so people, when not trained out of this, will grow all the way from their childhood into adulthood to be master manipulators. Dad, we never get ice cream. Mom, everyone else has this toy. We never get to go to Disney World. We try to give people reasons or hints rather than asking for things. Why? Because as soon as you ask someone, then you don't get to determine the answer. And we're hesitant to do that. We don't like to be turned down for things. And this applies not just to children, I hope you know, but to anything that we are afraid of what a no answer might bring. But for Jesus, asking and deferring to God means that he uh, has to accept no, or at least not now, or not yet, or not in the way that you want for an answer. For Jesus, to take it God's way means waiting, it means suffering, it means enduring the cross. You can see the appeal of the other option. And this is the potential appeal. Just worship me and you'll get it. As bad as this sounds to bow down and worship before Satan, it's actually worse. Worshiping Satan once would be bad enough as an act in and of itself. But of course, what would this mean? This would mean a full-scale break with God. An entire turn into a different kind of person, a different type of eternity. Now, owing to Jesus' nature and some other things that we will consider uh, in, a, uh, in a time to come, this was not going to happen. And of course, it did not happen. But you can see the appeal from someone of wanting these things, which in a certain way was a right desire for Jesus to have. It's just the wrong way to go about it. And this is what Satan offers him. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to wait. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to fight. And you don't have to die to get this. It can be yours right now. Now note carefully here, he tells him to worship falsely. But the temptation to Jesus is not as we might think. False worship. Jesus was not tempted to false worship per se. You understand that? Jesus was not told, you know, worshiping me is such a delightful experience. You should become a Satan worshiper. False worship is not the direct temptation. False worship is the promised way out. This is what Satan is telling him to do. And what's happening then here is Satan offering something that is legitimate and good and fine and permissible in and of itself. In fact, something that Jesus was promised to have, but it's a shortcut to get that thing. And the shortcut would be sinful. This is one of the devil's recurring strategies. It's not wrong to want food or money, but it's wrong to steal to get it. It's not wrong to want people to stop hurting you, but it's wrong to take vengeance against them when they do it. It's not that sexual activity is wrong, but rather sexual immorality outside of God's design of marriage. Having friends isn't wrong, but it is wrong to show partiality. Wanting someone to believe the truth or to obey their parents is not wrong, but it is wrong to try to bring them to that point by speaking to them with harshness or sinful anger. You have to see through the end promise and understand the way that we go about something doesn't justify, it isn't justified because the end goal is still okay. You have to know what the Bible says just as Jesus does and you have to be able to see through where the path is sinful even if the end destination is not. And so we want to consider that now and consider how Jesus responded 
to this. This is Jesus' response to temptation, all found in verse 8. The devil has tried to trick Jesus, but now Jesus has an answer. And he recognizes very clearly what's going on, doesn't he? He says, Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. A citation from Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Now notice again what I mentioned last week and what we'll see again in verse 12. Jesus just shuts down the whole discussion with one phrase. What is it? It is written. It is written. His response to the first temptation is, it is written. And here again, it is It is written. On the third temptation in verse 12, it will be, it is said. And you just can't get him away from this. His standard is the Bible. Nothing can go around that. Now, sometimes sometimes I feel bad. I feel like I might be a cold call salesman's worst nightmare. uh, Because I basically live by the principle that I'm not going to buy something on the first occasion that I get pitched for it. Uh, that's not what you have to do. I'm not saying it's unwise if you do that, but that's, that's what I do. But even I have my exception, and I know in advance what that is. And that exception is Girl Scout cookies. Thin mints, to be specific. If someone is selling Girl Scout cookies, I am going to buy at least one box of Thin Mints. And not only am I going to buy them, but there will be a box gone before the day is over. Don't tell my doctor, but that's the way that it goes. But apart from that... I do at least want to think about it and get some perspective. Thin mints are the exception, but everything else, I want to step back and say, you know, am I just buying into the hype or the urgency? And when that happens, I'm not really interested in reasoning with the person trying to sell things. People will come to the door, do you want to buy this? Do you want to buy this cable package? Do you want to buy these windows? Do you want to do this? And I'm, I'm not really interested in getting into an argument or a discussion. They start asking me questions, and I say, you know, I just, I'm not going to. It, it's not going to happen. Uh, he can talk to me about all the benefits But the answer is no. The answer is no. Or at most, maybe give me your card and I'll maybe call you back, which I don't know has ever happened. And that's kind of what's happening here with Jesus, only it's a more complete degree. Jesus is saying, absolutely not. I'm not interested in talking about it. I'm not even making an exception for cookies and I'm not taking a card. I am not going to do it. He doesn't say I'm going to call you back. If I think about this temptation more and then decide I want to take you up on it, he just says no. And I want you to consider for a minute what's so significant about that, which is simply this. Jesus does not reason with the devil. Jesus doesn't reason with him. That is to say, Jesus doesn't try to use logical arguments against the devil or tell him all the reasons why this is a bad idea. He just says, God's word says something, and it applies here in this way. And there's no other reasoning needed. And please note that this is the case, even though there are plenty of reasons that he could have given. He could have said something like, well, technically if I do this, then all the people in those nations and those kingdoms will be unredeemed. And what kind of kingdom would that be? It wouldn't be as good as the one that God has promised me. He doesn't question and say, you know, are you really going to give that to me? I'm not so sure. Or are you really able to give that to me? He doesn't say, well, devil, I can't do that because I'm the sinless son of God. And if I do that, then I'm going to become a sinner. 
He doesn't start to reason with him and give him all of the things and start to try to get into an argument. He doesn't give Satan all the reasons why. He doesn't even give him all the biblical reasons why, much less his own logical reasons. Jesus is just not interested in reasoning with him. And this helps us to understand something about that. Reasoning in and of itself can be and often is a very good thing, provided that it's within the right framework. The Apostle Paul is said in uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians 17, excuse me, in uh, Acts 17, to reason with the Bereans from the scriptures. He reasoned with them. Logic, reason, these things are part of God's world. They are good things. And a failure to use them on some level leads to a lot of trouble. But reason alone... Reason that's not driven by Scripture, reason that's outside of Scripture, when it comes to temptation, Jesus is not interested in that. And we shouldn't be either, but sometimes we are. Sometimes we get ourselves into trouble this way. When we rely upon just all the reasoning, we start to think that we can outwit Satan. And in fact, sometimes we do it because we like what's being offered as a temptation and we want to get around what we know Scripture says, but we just kind of want to find our way there. We start to grab onto all kinds of humanly devised ideas about why sin might be bad, and uh, we grab onto that. But that doesn't have the same power as what Jesus does. Now, it is true. There are many ways where people, apart from Scripture, apart from what Jesus says, apart from the Word of God... Uh, who aren't even Christians, by their own reasoning, do avoid certain things that the Bible says not to do. They have their reasons why they won't commit adultery. They have their reasons why they won't steal. They have their reasons why they won't do harm to people. But people who operate like this are very vulnerable. Very vulnerable. Because it's just about what makes sense in their framework and their worldview. And when the right offer comes, something like this, they can rationalize and justify because they don't have Scripture as the backstop. They don't have something there to say, I can't do that. It doesn't matter what you offer me. It doesn't matter how logical that is. It doesn't matter what your reasons are. I can't go there because it is written. So they're not well protected from ungodly reasoning. Their ways of thinking are insufficient. And if you follow them, yours will be too. A lot of public figures today have sprung up who seem to offer help to many of man's problems. And they've had great success in helping people to overcome certain things that truly are against the kind of ways that God would have us to live. And yet, those are not sufficient to fight against the temptations that Satan brings. And you leave yourself vulnerable when your ways of fighting sin are the kinds of techniques and principles derived from human ideas. It has to be Scripture. It has to be. And so if this is the only way you think, you'll be vulnerable because you don't know all that God knows. They don't know all that God knows, rather. They don't have the wisdom that God has, and they don't have the same purposes that God intends. So human reasoning always, to some degree, comes from a different place, goes a different route. It aims for different goals than what God has said. This leaves you vulnerable to sin, and it doesn't have the same staying power as simply knowing and submitting to God's word. So when you're fighting against temptation... If your unbelieving friends could respond and defeat that temptation in the same way as the reasons you're using, you should really check and make sure that you actually are fighting that in God's way. Instead, what you ought to do is make sure that your response to temptation is built upon the foundation of the Bible. Examples of this might be something like this. You might say to someone, I can't talk badly about that person. Do you know why? It might get back to them. And then what will happen? 
Instead, you should say, I can't talk badly about a person because God tells me how to use words in a godly way, no matter who hears. Don't say, I need to love other people because that's the way to build fulfilling relationships or to get ahead in business. Instead, say, I need to love other people because the Bible commands me to do this. Now, will talking badly about someone get back to them and cause you trouble? Probably. Will failing to love other people cost you in certain ways? Probably. But if that's your driving and total motivation, then you're going to be vulnerable when Satan brings the right temptation to you. Make Scripture your backstop. Let Scripture drive all your reasoning. And if you have that, when it comes to obeying God and overcoming temptation, you don't need anything else. And so the first way that Jesus responds to the devil's temptation is no reasoning with him. No reasoning with the devil's temptation. Jesus fundamentally then has his principles, and really it's just one. It is written. If God says no, don't buy it. You're not buying it. There's no discussion. There's no consideration. It's just the end of the story. He just says, sorry, not sorry. I wonder if this is how you handle temptation, by the way. When, um, when anything is offered to you as an opportunity, do you look and you say, has God said something about this matter? Has God said anything about this in his word? Now, if you're storing up scripture in your mind, if you're listening to the truth preached over and over again, if you're reading the word of God, if you're immersing yourself in scripture, many times that truth will simply be there and ready. And when you see something, it will, like in so many other areas of life, just make a connection right to your mind. You'll have that biblical wisdom. And by the way, we're also told, or at least uh, modeled, that we should pray for this as well, that people would have spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is the ability to take God's truth and to understand where it applies to life. So we should seek this out. We should know the word in order to do this. And we should pray for this in ourselves and in other people. But we should also make it the habit of just thinking to ourselves, does God talk about this? Does God say something about this? And making ourselves more and more aware through that filter, through the eyes of has God spoken about this? What does the Bible say about the circumstance that I'm faced with? What does God say about the temptation that's coming to me? What does God say about how I'm feeling or thinking about this right now? Whether it's through proactively asking that question or reactively obeying the thing that we have been reminded of just by seeing the thing. Are you connecting the Bible with your situations and your possible actions? And when you see scripture say something, do you say, that's the end of it. This is what we need to do. And so Jesus doesn't choose to not worship Satan then merely because it's not prudent. It's not because it's what other people will think. It's because the Bible says don't do that. What does he say then? It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Serve him only. Once again, Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. There are two things going on here. Exclusivity and activity. No other gods and actual worship. Satan is not God. And only the Lord God gets our worship. And that's why Jesus says, I'm not going to worship you. It doesn't matter what you give me. It doesn't matter what you offer me. The Bible says this is the way. And I am going to do this and only this. 
And so then, in addition to the way that Jesus handles Scripture and his perspective on that, it's worth considering for a moment the specific instruction from Scripture that Jesus used and it served for him as such a defining principle of worshiping God only. Worshiping the Lord and worshiping him only. Our worship and our loyalty belongs to God alone no matter what. It doesn't matter what someone else offers us. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable it is to do that. It doesn't matter whether we have a right to something. We might want to neglect worshiping God if he doesn't give us what we want when we want it. This is what Jesus faced. Jesus is saying, hey, this is mine. Why don't you just go ahead and give it to me, God? That's not nice of you. Why, don't, why are you going to make me go through all of this suffering? But he says, no, I'm going to worship God, even if the short-term path is harder. In many cases, it will be. Think about the examples of the people who did this in the Bible. We read about them all, in, well, many of them anyway, in Hebrews chapter 11. People who were willing to suffer and to endure hardship on the basis of their faith and their trust in the one true God. Think about Daniel, who was unwilling to sacrifice his religion because it would cost him his life. Think about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who were commanded to bow down before something that is not God and to worship it. And they said, we would literally rather die than do this. Was their life harder? Well, unless God had, uh, if God had not miraculously intervened, it wouldn't have just been harder. It would have been brutally harder and then over. And yet they were willing to do this. This is the example that we need to follow, worshiping the Lord at whatever cost it might be. Jesus is willing to pay the price or literally to miss out on having the whole world for some undefined period of time and of going to the cross. If that's what it means to adhere to this instruction to worship God completely. As we think about that, I want you to consider Jesus' refusal to sin and consider the price. What was he refusing to sin to get? All the kingdoms of the earth. And yet, what is it that we are tempted with? Are we tempted with things as great as all the kingdoms of the earth? I've never been. I don't know of anyone that's ever come to me and said, I can credibly offer you the rule of all the kingdoms of the earth in all their glory. I have yet to hear that. I might before I die, but I'm a little skeptical. Jesus turned that down. And yet, we often sin to get much, much less. Much less much less than what Jesus suffered for, much less than what Jesus was offered. And so everything that we sin to get or to avoid is smaller than what Jesus was offered and what he was faced with. And this should help us to remember just how small our sacrifice is for him compared to his sacrifice for faithfulness to God on our behalf. Jesus was willing to endure all of this and he missed out on a lot more, something that he actually did deserve. And yet, we often turn aside to smaller things. We should repent of this and recognize it and say that if Jesus was willing to give this up for us, we should be willing to give up lesser things for him. Jesus then has no problem with wanting the kingdoms of the world that is, after all, his inheritance. And uh, they've been promised to him. They've been prophesied. To be given to him. I want to read you one more verse as we consider that. In the book of Daniel in chapter 7, we have this glorious picture of, of what this is going to look like. And Daniel sees a vision at night. 
all of the kingdoms of the earth represented by these beasts. And it says in Daniel uh, 7 verses 13 and 14, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This for him is promised. This will one day come. He has now been exalted to the right hand of God and he awaits the time when God sends Jesus to restore all things as he spoke about in the prophets as Peter preached in Acts 3. But it isn't just Jesus who's promised a future for those who are willing to be faithful to the Lord. We read on in Daniel chapter 7 in verse 18 it says, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And then it says in verse 27, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. It isn't just Jesus who's promised something amazing, but we are promised to join with him in that reward if we are faithful to him. Jesus put it this way in the book of Revelation. He said to him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit on my throne just as God gave me to sit on his throne. So we have a reward coming as well. It's just as Jesus' is delayed. It's one we have to wait for. It's one that we don't get to shortcut to. It's one that we don't get to dictate the details and the timing of, but one rather that just like Jesus, we have to trust him for and we have to believe it. But he will make good on that. And so when we're faced with temptation, we say, I value more the heavenly reward and I value what God is doing and I value God's worthiness of worship, as Jesus says here, over any possible reward that can come from me sinning here and now. So Jesus has these promises. He's not willing to sin to get them. We also should follow this example. He says no on the basis of God's word and God's word alone. And so we should follow this example as well. He sets the example of how to overcome the devil's temptations. And in Luke chapter 4, he himself continues to prove his worthiness as the perfect son of God. He is very impressive, isn't he? Very impressive. But he's not just one to be impressed by. Because Jesus is proving himself to be the Son of God. And we know what the Apostle John said about this. We know that Jesus didn't just come to be the Son of God so that we might put him up on a poster. So that we might say things about him. So that we would proclaim his greatness. But there's a specific way that God wants us to respond to that greatness. The Apostle John wrote a whole gospel to prove this point. But he had a goal. He didn't write the Gospel of John so that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and just know that as a matter of actual fact. He says, rather, there are many other signs. John 20, verse 30, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We are told in Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We are told that if you believe in Jesus, then you'll have eternal life. That if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll have your sins forgiven. 
Jesus didn't do all this so that we would just step back and say, what an amazing guy. Jesus did this so that he could not only continue to minister as the perfect son of God, but so that he could demonstrate that he is the one in whom we should put our faith. And you need, if you have never done that, to do that. And he offers the same salvation to all who come to him, no matter how old, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad it is, or no matter how good you thought you were until this moment. Jesus comes to save anyone and everyone who understands that we all need him for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And I urge you to come to him, to consider this. Recognize Jesus' greatness. Recognize the salvation that he offers. Recognize that God has commended him to us. And turn to him in faith for your salvation. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have shown us who Jesus is through this text. Give us the grace to follow him in every way. Some, even this morning, perhaps for the first time. And the rest of us who have already made the decision to follow Jesus, that we might follow him more faithfully and more joyfully, with more trust. We pray that you would help us to fight against temptation in the same way and that you would work in us to bring not only that but a heart of worship toward you through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.